Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander, and we are Needy in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 177, recorded on March the 7th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. This is a full-length interview with Gregor Sati, an Azure architect out of Glasgow we've had the pleasure of bumping into several times during our travels. Enjoy! And we are joined now by a real Azure legend, Gregor Sati. Welcome! Thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know about the legend. Less of that, please. I don't like people embarrassing me, but thank you for having me. I'm just delighted to be here. So there is this very, very fine line between legend and menace. I think you're doing a great job straddling it. Yeah, I think I'm a menace to a lot of people, to be honest. <laughs> Especially people are lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, we are very happy that you, to have you here. And we will talk about your journey uh, into the community, uh, as well as learnings and Azure and we'll see where we where we end up but um, first and foremost who are you and, and what do you do? Yes so my name is Gregor Sutty uh, I'm an Azure architect at a company called Intercept in the Netherlands I'm also an Azure MVP uh, how did I get here so I've got a bit of a background as a developer and mostly well I started with VB6 way back in the day then became .NET developer kind of progressed to developer, senior developer, that kind of thing. Um, my last role, I was a development manager. Uh, I also like data, so I'm into kind of SQL Server, Microsoft products, that kind of stuff, and DevOps as well. So kind of development, DevOps, and database stuff as well. So that's kind of my background. And now I'm doing Azure stuff, so I'm an Azure architect at Intercept, and day-to-day we pretty much uh, create designs for customers and then implement them and help them on their journey into Azure. So. Lots of learning, lots of cool stuff at the moment. So really enjoying it, really enjoying it. That's my background. And, and I think it, it sounds like a fantastic combination of skills. Uh, and also I now know that there are two people that like SQL Server uh, in, in this call. I mean, uh, sorry. Uh, and I, I, I just need to point out that my journey started with Visual Basic as well. <laughs> Great way to start. I'm not sure that Visual Basic... so. Was Visual Basic around, Simon, when you started? Is is that how they coded the PC game Petson? And, and every, everyone in Sweden will love <laughs> I don't know what that was like. As much as Gregor are tuning no, out. No. I, we, will, we will post a picture of that game uh, later on. So it, the, the full name of that game would be Petson i Snickarboden. Um, don't ask which me to say, say that. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on. Uh, that combination of development, data, and Azure, that it's, it sounds like you're, you're perfectly set for the future of IT. Yeah. But, but are you benefic- is it beneficial to have a developer background when you're looking into moving possibly to Azure? Great question. Um, I'm lucky enough to work with lots of good people at my company who cover all different things. So I get all the kind of development questions when it comes to Azure. So we've got people who do AKS and people who do networking. I'm not, I'm hopeless at either. I'm really not, I'm the only architect in the world who doesn't know how to do networking. And um, <laughs> AKS just isn't my thing. So I, that's my, that's me leaving my cards on the table. I'll do everything else. So if it's data, anything to do with development, that's me. So yeah, I find it quite beneficial. Um, very busy at work because I get a lot of development. Well, we kind of work with development companies. 
So yep. their main problems are how do we get to Azure? How do we get to the cloud? What do we need to do to transform our apps? Now we're seeing a lot of AKS stuff as well, but they need to kind of modernize their apps first before they think about that stuff. So yeah, I think it's pretty beneficial. Yeah. I'm kind of a bit different. Most people have an IT ops networking kind of background to become architects. I've kind of got the other side covered. So it's interesting, but I like it. And, and it feels like it doesn't matter how much operational experience you have if you're trying to transform an app. It, it doesn't matter if you know networking because it doesn't affect it the same way in Azure regardless, um, I would say. Or, or now it looks like Alexander disagrees. So yes and no. I'd argue that you always need to know some networking, but that doesn't mean you specifically need to know networking. That's where your smart colleague comes in. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of your background being uniquely set for working with apps in Azure in a way that most people would probably not be set for. Most people generally come from the infrastructure side and then dive into Azure. And I mean, mixing developers with infrastructure people, it's like oil and water. It, it doesn't mix. It, it's an unholy mess for the most part. And you're set for both, but coming from another um, angle. In a previous role, I was a kind of development lead at um, JP Morgan, and we were trying to deploy apps, and there was a completely different team in a different part of the world that were deploying these apps, and I thought, right, we need to bridge the gap between these two teams. So I kind of did an SRE role, where I kind of sat in the middle and went, right, what do you need development-wise, what do you need to know? And ops guys, what, what do you need to know for what we're doing? And kind of bridge that gap. So that's kind of where I learned a little bit of the ops side of things, because I was never a fan of another team deploying an app that I worked on. Because they didn't know what we were doing and we didn't know how they were deploying it. You'd get a phone call to say it's not working and it turns out they've deployed it completely wrong because they didn't know how to deploy it. I thought that was crazy, so I kind of helped bridge that gap. So I'm quite useful for deploying apps and, and fixing apps and all that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, I do have a different kind of um, take on being an Azure architect. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And you and I, we, we first met, I think it was in 2017 or 16. I can't remember the first time I went to Glasgow to yep. Glasgow Azure User Group. Um, and, and from there, it, it's really taken off for both of us. Um, I, I would say for to me, the Glasgow Azure User Group were really where I started to speak on an international level. Um, and I'm very happy still for, for it being invited there. But if you look at your community journey, because you started off uh, hosting a user group uh, as well as learning a lot of things and also taking numerous certifications. So how did you end up there? Uh, and um, Yeah, so if I go back a little bit further, I'm sitting on JP Morgan as a .NET developer. The cloud was very popular. They were building their own internal cloud, which wasn't really... It just seemed like a massive journey to try and build your own cloud. So I thought, I'm going to try and learn some cloud stuff. I had a quick look at AWS, but I had a Microsoft background on my entire career. So that's where Azure came in. Um, went on to Google, is there any Azure user groups? There was one, Sarah had started the Glasgow Azure group. So I went along for maybe six or seven. And then she kind of approached me to say, would you like to help out? So that was, yep, definitely. Because really loved the talks, really loved the technology, wanted to learn more, just soak it all up. And kind of went from there um, and then did a talk at it. She asked me to help. I said yes and then kind of the rest is history. But 
absolutely love going to the talks and kind of helping set it all up as well. Yeah. And and when it comes to your learning journey and your certifications, which which were your first Microsoft ah. exam that you took? So, Do you remember that? Visual Basic? No. <laughs> so I actually made the mistake of trying to learn Azure from just reading blog posts and reading stuff. So I was I tried the EZ one hundred and the one hundred and one. Um yeah, not not from a developer background that's not a nice start. But so that was like the that's probably the admin ones, I think, if that's right, back in the day. Yeah. Um so I just failed them, but I kinda thought to myself, you know, I six months ago I knew nothing about Azure and now I've got like I think I got six hundred and eighty and six hundred and ninety, so it was just yeah. failing the two of them. So I was like, Yeah, I'm quite pleased I've actually learned something and I've proved I've learned something. And then I moved on to do the kind of dev exams and the DevOps, and that was more my cup of tea. But again, I like doing all the exams because I like to learn as much as I can. I'm a bit of a sponge. I don't, I don't like when somebody asks me something I know nothing about. So I always want to know something, even if it's not like in-depth, as long as I've got a fair <laughs> idea of what they're talking about, then I can start a conversation with customers and things like that. But yeah, so I did all those exams, and, and I've passed 13, so... I've yeah. got loads of renewals to do this year, unfortunately, which I need to start doing, but yeah, I mean... I did all the AI and the DevOps and the SQL Server exams and, and all that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, you sound a lot like the way I see myself, like this um, jack-of-all-trades, basically being able to not only hold your own in a conversation, but also inject your experience into a conversation and thus bridging gaps between teams that otherwise would not even have known of their own existence. Yeah. The thing I see about that is... I see people who are really successful in one area. So you become a security guru or you become an AKS guru or a, or a DevOps guru. I, this might sound bad, but I couldn't do that. I can't just pigeonhole, maybe pigeonhole's the wrong words, but I can't just stay in one area. Yeah, I like to know a little bit about everything. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very much like that and I'll always be like that. I just like learning new things. Um, the minute something new comes out, I'm always trying to look at it and just... And it's not just the new shiny thing, it's just... What can it do for our customers? Can it help? Most of these things make our lives easier at the end of the day. Not always, but most of them do. So if it makes our lives easier, I want to know about it and I want to try and help people learn about it as well. So when are you going to attempt AZ-700? Probably never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I'm, somebody was winding me up the other day they said you need to do the networking exams and I was like, yeah, that's, that's... I actually do want to learn it, but... It's kind of down the list a little bit. I probably should learn it further up the list. But yeah, I need to do all those, all those renewals first, I think. Get them out of the way and then maybe do it. Yeah, that, that's the hard part about doing a lot of exams at the same time, that you will have to renew them all at the same time as well. Speaking as the person who missed renewing my Azure Administrator exam for 180 days... And then I'd retake the exam, but in the end, it it went all right. But I'm not missing out on another exam again. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I've got two to do that I've kind of been putting off, but I do need to do them. But yeah, I I really like the renewal process. I think it's quite yeah. good. Um, I wouldn't like to have to do the exams again because there's quite a lot of work involved in studying for the exams. To be honest, yeah, good learning though. Yeah. And and how do you go about in preparing for an exam? What what's your best advice to uh, people that good question. want so to do it? So normally I would go to the exam page, then I would take a note of all of the bullet points of the things you need to do. What I'll always do is if it's on a topic that I don't know, I'll create a study guide. So I'll just copy the bullet points out of the web page, 
Stick them in a blog post and go and find links on Microsoft Docs for everything. Or a blog post that people have written that cover that subject. And that's where I'll start. Then I'll see if there's anything on WizLabs or all the other training sites just to see if there's anything in there that you... Any courses on that stuff. But the number one thing for me is hands-on learning. I failed the first two exams because I didn't do any hands-on learning at all. I didn't even go into the portal. I tried to be I tried to pass admin exams from reading blog posts and books and stuff like that. That's not a good idea and I don't think too many people will pass doing that. So hands-on labs, um, go through the Microsoft Learn content. I know it's cliched but that's the best kind of thing you can do. And, and Normally what I'll do as well is I'll book an exam for three months or two months in, the fa- in advance because that'll make me focus. Otherwise I'll just be like, ah, I'll do it sometime, I'll do it sometime. But I always book the exam at the start. That means that I have to spend an hour every night during the week to, to do that until I pass it. That's kind of what I do. And, and two follow-up questions on that. First, what value do you see that the blog posts adds to it? What what do you gain from reading the blog post in addition to the Microsoft Learn resources? To reading my blog post or blog posts from other people, do you mean? Uh, other people. Yeah, when I mean, you prepare for an exam. Uh, they've always went through it and they kind of they've they've seen it and kind of know what to, to kind of talk about and mention. So you usually can gain some insights from people's blog posts about tips and what things to cover and that kind of thing. So I always try and read other people's blog posts and the study guides on the exams just to see what they are saying and get try and get a feel for what's in the exam and what's not in the exam. Yeah, definitely a good idea to do that. But I always write study guides and I always find them very helpful. That's probably my number one viewed blog posts are all my um, study guides because people do find them quite useful because it's quite a lot to learn and, and you don't always find Microsoft Learn covers everything in depth so sometimes the additional MSDN blog post links can be help can be helpful and then that's that's an interesting uh, thing in itself the uh, the Microsoft Learn material since Simon and I are you a certified trainer as well by the way Gregor so then you know that the material that we get to teach for say for instance AZ 104 it only covers roughly up to 70% of the learning goals. So everything else you need to find on your own. I'm actually doing some LinkedIn learning training for an exam, and I noticed that recently. That's a very good point. I was like, there's like five parts to the exam, and it covers three in the MCT content. So that was quite mm. interesting. I was like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't cover everyone. And I wasn't sure why that was, but I checked another one, and it was the same. So yeah, so just to fill in all the gaps and kind of, did I always always tell people at work, book the exam, get some study guides, get some hands-on learning, and go from there. And what, what's your view on, on failing exams? So a couple of other things I wanted to quickly mention. I always set the, the practice tests at the start. So if I'm doing AZ700, for example, I'll set any practice tests if there were any, and then I'll get like 30, and I'll think, right, okay, I don't know this. And then I'll study for a couple of months, and then I'll do it again, and I'll maybe get 60, and I'll go, right, this is starting to stick. Um, so my advice on failing exams is that you can look back and look and see what you've learned, which is key. So if I've learned something that I know that that's that's stuck in my mind, that's good because my memory is terrible at the best of times. But the fact that um, that I know that I'm learning something and it's starting to stick, that's that's brilliant for me. So if I see anybody failing, I always say to them tweet that. Don't just tweet that you've passed. And hardly anyone tweets that they've failed, and I think that's not 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 always a good thing. You should always put down your failures as well because there's lots of us have failed exams and probably embarrassed to see it. But you know what I mean? It's, you shouldn't be embarrassed. You should, you should just look at the, the learning opportunity that you can go and learn some more stuff. That's how I look at it anyway. 
Yeah, and I think that that was one of my most popular LinkedIn posts last year when I uh, tweeted and and linked, what do you say, posted on LinkedIn. I can't remember which exam it were, but I did say that I, I failed this. And I had so many people that reacted to that, shared that they also have failed, shared that, okay, good that you asked me to do this again uh, and we're super happy so i think that was one of my most popular blog posts if you think about linkedin nobody really does that it's all look at me i've got a new job and look at this and that and it's not really real world to be honest it's tinted towards everything's awesome and we're all passing all these exams and that's not real world um i've had people at work really petrified of feeling and i'm like don't maybe take i always try and say take the test up front and they're like, oh, but I don't know anything. And I'm like, that's fine. That's a yard yardstick for when you do pass it. You can say, I've learned and went from nothing to this. I think that's quite important to recognize that you've learned all that as well. And speaking about hands-on learning, because that's something, when, when I've mentored community uh, friends and so on, what I hear a lot is that they, they might have just started their cloud journey or they work at an, an employer where they don't get access to to real hands-on learning are there any good resources to get some hands-on learning without it being too costly for someone uh there are um obviously microsoft learn has got some sandbox stuff you can make use of that but there's there are some hands-on labs depending on like i look at the devops stuff Mm. so there's an azure devops generator which got some hands-on labs and that's kind of free but yeah, there's, there's, there are some out there. They're quite tricky to find, but there's like handsonlabs.com is quite a good one, I think it was. Um, Microsoft got a lot of hands-on labs for a lot of things in there that you can go and spin things up. But yeah, some of the exams have got some stuff and some of them don't, so I guess it's you just need to kind of look. Um, but I've got an Azure resources page that I try and keep up to date on GitHub for things like that. If I find any hands-on labs, I'll put them in there and kind of try and share that. So I could maybe share that link with you. Um then the one thing that I would really like to see, I keep ranting about this, so apologies, but I think the the Azure documentation really needs um, more examples. My mm. biggest thing is I look at an example and I think, right, here's how you use Keyvault. I always use Keyvault as an example. That's fine, I can use Keyvault. But the hard part of Azure is hooking up all these services to talk to each other. And do I use a managed identity? Do I use a user managed identity? What is a managed identity? How do I hook all this up and stuff like that? I would really like to see, going forward, projects. A bit like they did a Tailwind Traders thing that was all about how to do AKS and set it all up. And it, everyone used that as an example. I would really like to see that going forward for project samples at Microsoft because I think that will help a lot of people as well. Did you see the, um, the, qua- the, the quadrants that was posted on Twitter the other day about uh, writing and documentation? So... Four quadrants kind of goes with the name quadrants, but you have uh, practical steps and theoretical knowledge on the uh, y-axis and most useful when we're studying and most useful when we're working on the x-axis. So that means you have up to the left where you have practical steps and most useful for studying, that'd be tutorials. Those are learning oriented. When it comes to understanding oriented, that's most useful when you're studying, but needing theoretical knowledge, that's where you have explanations. And then you have how-to guides and reference so it all depends on what you're looking for and i i I applaud your opinion on the need for more uh tutorials and how-to guides examples that's how a lot of people learn yeah i mean a lot of our customers will say um i know i know i need to use key vault but i don't know how to hook it up to service bus correctly 
And when I look at the docs, I see how to use Service Bus and I see how to use Key Vault, but I don't know how to hook these together. Um, where am I storing? How do I even fill secrets? And a good example is Key Vault. You might have a Key Vault in Dev and a Key Vault in Test. How do you take the sam? How do you take the keys in Dev and put them into Test without handcrafting it all and stuff like that? So yeah, I mean it is a little bit of a my bugbear is that it's difficult for people to learn this stuff because there's not any projects to reference. Um, I would really like them to do more of that, and hopefully they will going forward. Um, I spoke to someone about the Key Vault sample, and they wrote a big, huge page about how to do everything they've came across scenario-wise. And I said, well, see if every Azure Doc page had a scenario page that you could link to even blog posts that people have written about how to do stuff. That would be really beneficial, I think, rather than just, this is Key Vault, this is what you can do it. Here's some sample scenarios that people need in real life, because we all need to use Key Vault to talk to anything. So... Yeah, that's kind of my rant over, but I'd like to see more project examples. But I do think that's key because if you look at how now, sorry if I uh, offend anyone at Microsoft, but if you look at how they how they work, it's still very product group centric. Uh, so you you won't find that many integrations. Like we now we have a collaboration page between conditional access and uh, let's say. A, Defender for Cloud Apps, how do you set up session-based policies? But there are very few because they do not do that kind of documentation. And I think that would be extremely valuable. When I asked yeah. them about this, I got that feedback. And it's like, well, we've got people in different teams and we don't really talk to each other. And I'm like, yeah, so there's a there's a docs team that do the docs. And I, think, I feel like saying, well, maybe you need a docs person in your team that talks exactly. to the other docs person in another team. And then you collaborate and you go, right, let's create some... The the one really good thing is the bicep team. I was really struggling with how to create um, Azure policies and how to use them and manage the entity and tie it all together. Reached out to them and went, "We've got a scenarios page. We'll add the scenarios to this, so that the next time someone is looking for this, there you go." And I'm like, "That's what I would love to see across the board: scenario examples of how to use this stuff, because everyone's struggling with it, and I think it's definitely required." I I agree and. I, I would argue that it actually gets worse than it's just uh, different teams. For the most part, and I am not throwing the docs team under the bus here, but th for the most part, people who are writing the docs know the documentation and know the, the material too well. Mm -hmm. They are not looking at it from the perspective of someone who doesn't have the lingo or doesn't have the implicit knowledge. And, and when, you, when you ask them about it, they're like, um, well, why don't, like, like someone said, why don't you create a, I, I get, um, why don't you edit the Git page? And I'm like, I can't do that for all samples. So I think my, my main reason is, let's have a scenario page that links to all the docs. So a scenario page for Kivo, a scenario page for managed identity, and then let's just go from there. It's, I mean, it's difficult. They're all saying that it's really hard to keep up to date, and I totally get that, because everything, we all know everything changes every day. So the docs are out of date before you've written them almost, but they need to try and tackle the project thing in, my, in the scenarios in my view. But the scenarios should be somewhat easier to keep up to date because the scenarios wouldn't change and, and the integrations wouldn't change too massively. Uh, it, it's more about the features, the, the additional things you can add to it. And, and I'm not, I don't know about this, but um, since, since we are able, anyone is able to update the documentation uh, um, using GitHub, can you add a completely new 
page or segment to a doc or is that something that Microsoft needs to do for you and then you can fill it yeah, with content? I'm, I'm not sure. It's a good question. You know, this all stemmed from Octopus Deploy. Octopus Deploy used to have a samples page that was a, a community-driven mm-hmm. examples and that's what I would really like to do. Now, they'll say, well, they'll potentially say that we can't vet everyone's samples and I totally get that. But even if you link to them to say, have, go and have a look at this page, this might be what you're after. That might be a start. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not an easy problem to fix. I totally understand that. But I just think we need something better than what was there just now. Just to give yeah. people a helping hand. Um, and I, I, it even goes as far as costs. People are always thinking, how much does this stuff cost? You know what I mean? The one thing that still sticks out in my mind is KeyVault. You've got two options. You can use a user-managed identity or a system assigned. Everybody's like, what one do I use and why? The docs won't explain that to you. You know what I mean? You've got two options and they leave you with two options. Yeah. And I'm like... I don't know. And then I'll go and read it and I'll be like, right, you want to use use user assigned because of X. You can't really write that into the docs easily, I don't think. You can't explain everything. That's why I'd like a wee accompanying video saying, we our best practice is use this and this is why. Yeah. And I think that that's also a quite interesting discussion in itself that Microsoft have their best practices. But their best practices is not always the proven practices from the people that are using the technology. And and when you start to combine that, I would understand if Microsoft ended up in a situation where this was in the docs and it didn't work or it was very costly or whatever because someone else had a... a, In their scenario, this worked fine. They were okay with the cost. But... uh, And we will... will (laughs) get back on on topic soon but i find this quite interesting that it would be kind of interesting also to have a a kind of community page where you have the docs you have blog posts that are to some extent curated by microsoft so it's accurate information but where you could actually say look here there you have scenarios there you have all of this we take no responsibility for this content but we see that it's valuable yes because there's lots of blog posts that actually people are doing real world scenarios and they've done this hard part and then if you put all that in a created list you could maybe link to it i don't know maybe that's too oversimplifying it but that's what i would try while we're on the subject i would love to see uh, more real world uh, applications of the their architecture patterns because they are designed for nasa and (laughs) the size of that company myself and richard were on a call with a guy who's not i don't know if he's in charge of that area but he's he's well known um and we were asking about that and he said all of that is coming i said yeah. to him oh. we also need i said to him can you make the designs downloadable some of them are svgs but like can you also add pricing to things like this like how much does yeah. this cost or roughly how much does this cost um so all of that that we asked for he did say it was coming i, I maybe need to speak to him again that was four or five months ago but yeah, I think I agree. I'd like to see some more stuff in there. It's very, very good. Don't get me wrong. I love it, but I would like like a wee bit, wee bit more. Um, would be good. And that was actually something that the Config Manager team did a while back, where the, the initial sizing for Config Manager were 25,000 seats. So you had, didn't have anything below 25,000 seats, which meant that everyone went for the 25,000 seat setup, uh, which was, and they still managed to fail the SQL installation. So they needed all that performance regardless. Uh, but uh, now they are actually scaling down to, I think it's 2,000 seats. And and then you have a reasonable size that you can actually 
reference because if you're less than 2000 seats well it's it's likely that it it wouldn't matter if you had four or six gigs of ram that would probably be doable regardless and if you're too small you shouldn't be using config manager regardless so i, yeah, I think having that 2000 versus 20000 that's an order of magnitude absolutely and now you have also i think it's 2 5 10 or so so you, it's it's a decent size and it also goes upwards so i think the the biggest reference they have is 700000 seats now um and I still have ma- I, I, not many, but a couple of customers <laughs> that are exceeding that <laughs> with with uh, a, a metric mile <laughs> or wow. mile. And yeah. I think so. I'm I'm seeing a pattern with docs here, and that is that everybody and their cat loves docs. Yeah, we just want more of it, more scenarios, more more content. I think that's that's a pretty high praise. When I gave them feedback, they're like, "What about adding it to Learn?" And I said, "Microsoft Learn is really good, but it, it I, I feel like I'm slating it here, and I'm not because I love it. I'm on it every day. I use it every day. I just feel it's like, you know how they do the 100, 200, 300, 400. It feels a little bit like it's not three or four hundred. It, it kind of covers the top level thing. But and you say that to people, and they're like, "We don't really want to change docs. Uh, sorry, Microsoft Learn." And I wouldn't touch Microsoft Learn to make it more i think it, that's a different area altogether but it doesn't go into huge amounts of detail um so i would try and leave that alone and keep that for getting up and started with services and then things like that but i think yeah i wouldn't touch microsoft learn and make it 300 400 level i think because that would take quite a lot of effort yeah i mean it's it's kind of a pyramid i mean you have a lot of stuff that needs to go be gone through on on level 100 and 200 and then you have the really deep stuff that goes into docs the three and four hundred level well what should we use the community for if not that yeah i think so anyway yeah that's my personal opinion i mean there's probably something in the docs team looking at my feedback going yeah that's not going to help that's a pipe dream but that's something i would look i would like to see um especially the community pages thing i think might be the quick way to to get some wins out of that um, here's some curated uh, content from MVPs yeah. or community people who have done this. Here's the scenarios. Go and check them out if you're if you're still stuck. Type thing. But it, but isn't the the um, DevOps blog doing kind of that where they are amplifying some blog posts? And I think that is fantastic and really helps people that write great content getting out to the community because that is not easy. That's not easy. Like if you're a new person that's blogging and you need to get that attention and you do great things we i think there are tons of great resources that isn't visible because they have too few followers on twitter yes i also think there's probably the thing that i'm asking for probably is somewhere it's probably on a youtube channel or it's yeah. buried in tech community or something you know what i mean they're probably there that we just haven't kind of found the right place to hold to home them all um yeah because there's i, I noticed the the See the SQL workshops and the SQL labs that are on Git, they're really good. I'd like to see stuff like that. Here's how you go about creating a, a data warehouse in SQL and, and step-by-step guides. That kind of stuff's quite useful. More of that would be good. So speaking about Twitter uh, and, and community, we um, some say that we have had a pandemic. Um, yes, Simon, we have. <laughs> I yeah. think we definitely have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and and some claim that it's over now. Some claim that it's not. No, Simon, it isn't. 
Um, and and you have a quite substantial amount of followers on Twitter. Yes, it does. Um, up up to thirteen and a half thousand almost. Say what? Thirteen and a half thousand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've been at Twitter for about I don't know, thirteen or fourteen years though. That's the yeah. You started uh, April two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. What? So that's fifteen years ago. So yeah. But I actually, um, my big sister told me when I was younger, network as much as you can, because nothing bad comes from knowing lots of people and and networking. So I have went out of my way to try and, like, I do Azure. So I literally spent one night going through all the Microsoft people who do Azure, follow them. All the people who are MVPs, Azure, follow them. So I've went out of my way to curate the people that I follow most of the time. Not all of the time, but most of the time. So I... um, Kind of, I, I kind of look after what I'm doing on on Twitter. I've actually changed the way I've used Twitter the last six months, which has been quite interesting. I used to follow everyone and and read it constantly and retweet all the stuff and all that. And I've stopped doing that because I've got some side stuff that I need to do. Um, but I've noticed that not being on Twitter and being kind of amplifying everyone else's stuff, it's it's kind of been a bit weird because you don't get any opportunities and no one really tweets to you and stuff like that. It's just it's hard to describe, but it's definitely yeah. not as good. Um, so what I would say is I would f- try and follow as many people as you can in the area that you're interested in um, not everyone uses Twitter the same way as me obviously a lot of people have got huge followers and don't ha- don't follow many people themselves but I want to try and learn as much as I can so my idea is why would I not want a feed of lots of people working in the area that I am and then I can learn from them that's kind of my thought I don't understand having 15,000 followers and following th- 200 people i don't get that um i just don't understand that that doesn't add up how, how how do you keep up yeah exactly that that was my question because i'm i'm i don't have that many followers but i'm up to almost 3000 now um and I i'm have following 1500 and i can't keep up yeah well it depends um, depends i don't try to keep up anymore that's the thing at the start i was trying to keep up and i was trying to spend hours on it and i thought <laughs> what am i doing why am i spending two and three hours a day i was getting updates on my phone saying i've been on twitter for three hours and i'm like this needs to stop so i'm 15 minutes a day typing that thing now um but i, I have had a, had a lot of opportunities from twitter um yeah. it's hard to describe but yeah if you put yourself out there and do it correctly i think you can you can learn a lot and get a lot of opportunities so, so you basically aim for the Twitter algorithm to give you the content that you that would be most valuable based on what you have interacted with previously. Some people say, "Why do you follow so many people?" Because I want I don't want to read about Joe Blogs doing stupid stuff. I want to read about all the Azure people doing the Azure stuff. That's kind of how I use Twitter. Yep. Um, that doesn't always appeal to everyone, but I want to try and fill my list of scrolling through things with things that I'm interested in. If that makes sense. And and speaking about community, how because you became an MVP during the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or just no, before? No, just before it, I think. Yeah, just yeah. before. Yeah. So, how have your community engagement been during the pandemic, and how do you see that it will change now? Good question. Uh, during the pandemic, I, I think like a lot of people, I got fed up with the amount of online content. It started off like fine, and everybody was going to. It was a great opportunity to attend user groups all around the world, and that was great. But six months down the line, I was like, yeah, it's the same person doing the same... T-. I kept seeing the same people doing the same talks, and I was thinking, yeah, this is getting a bit long in the tooth. Um, so I did a lot of talks at the start, 
So I used the opportunity to try and get my name out a little bit and kind of go around the world and do talks from sitting here, which was great. Um, I'm quite happy to talk to people sitting in my own house, but don't set me up in front of people because then I get a bit nervous. So it was good to do that. Um, then I think there was a whole bit of fatigue where everyone was just getting fed up all the online content because it was it was great content, but it was just so much of it. And it was every week, every month there was a new user group and it was just like, yeah, I think most people got tired of it. Now, uh, hopefully we're coming out of it and we're starting to go back to in-person events, which will be brilliant. It'll be great to see everybody in person again. And I'll probably go back to just helping Sarah run it and won't be doing any talks because, yeah, <laughs> I get too nervous standing up in front of people. Um, but yeah, so it's changed in that way. But I've tried to help people that I work with and all that get up to speed with becoming an MVP or an MCT and, and buying all the gear and kind of learning to do talks and trying to get other people in the community up and running, which is quite important to me. I quite like helping people get started. That's kind of what I tweet and I retweet now. I don't really retweet people who are well-established. I know that might sound bad, but I try and give a voice to the people who are the couple of hundred followers and try and get them up a bit because that's, that's the way I think about doing stuff at the moment. Um, yeah, even doing talks, I try, and, I try and put forward people who are trying to become speakers. I try and amplify that rather than amplifying people who are like well-known in the community because they're well-known and they'll get retweets anyway, but the other people won't, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. See how we go on with that. What about you guys? How have you found the, the whole COVID thing in the community? How's that? Good or bad uh, or indifferent? A, a pain in the mm-hmm. is my opinion. Yeah, it's time it was, time it was, time it was all over. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I spoke a lot and Alexander spoke. I, how many talks did you do? Do you remember your numbers over 2020 and, and 2021? Uh, I think it was over 23 or something. And it was... Yeah way too much yeah absolutely way too much and and i actually did a an online event today the the power bi global the global power bi summit and it was the weirdest thing because the the um, the session was pre-recorded so i only had a 30 minute q a and i had so many people asking questions and, mm. and giving comments and and saying the most amazing things so this this was by far the best online experience i think i've had yeah yeah and i, I can agree with that because the best online experience i've had um, is probably the jnuk 2020 when i did my first talk at jnuk where i had around 1800 people joining me for that half an hour it was pre-recorded but i was there answering questions and when you have that constant flow of questions coming in, when you reach a certain mass of people, that is really rewarding. Same goes for the table talks at the first Ignites, where I was one of the hosts, um, where you had hundreds of people tuning in, asking questions, um, multiple speakers. That was really good. But in the end, uh, I think it was around August last year, I just felt that standing in front of the camera, not seeing anyone, yeah. getting minimal feedback—it's not just—it's not just worth it. Uh, so I've basically said that I will be very low on my virtual talks. Uh, I'm focusing on more product group interaction currently because that's what I really get uh, energy from at this point, and I can't wait to be back on stage because I do love that, and I do think that it will be interesting to do hybrid talks because we had. Um, I did a very small talk for a 
uh, whatever it's called, um, a group of small uh, business owners um, in one of the Swedish regions. And and we uh, were 10 in the room, and then another 10 on a kind of Surface Hub-like device, and they all had their cameras on. That worked rather well, because they could be interactive, I could see them all the time, uh, and that made a, a enormous difference. So I think some things are good. I think that we can bring virtual attendance in to a physical room in another way, um, uh, and all of that, but I can't wait to be back in Glasgow. No, well. I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> we can't wait to have an event. We're just trying to find out when yeah. we can do it. Um, I think going forward, things like Ignite and all that will be hybrid, even with yeah. COVID's away, because the people who can't get to these events are missing out, and now we've found a way to get them there. So um, hopefully they'll be hybrid going forward, which means that might be difficult to organise because you'll have to do the events slightly different, but should be good. Should be interesting to see how that pans out. I think the, the, the most important takeaway from the COVID pandemic is what, that we've well and truly established that it can't be done. It's just bullshit. Yes. Yeah. It can be done. It, it takes some thinking about it and it takes some changes, but it can be done. And that is, that's the first step in order to make, make something great. Yeah, I think if you're disabled and you've now went to these events, it would be really... A slap in the face if they said, right, we're going to Ignite and it's in person only. That would be a real slap yeah. in the face to all these people. And I don't think they could do that. I don't think they should do that. And I don't think they will do that. Yeah. Um, we've had problems at the Glasgow user group where there's a person in a wheelchair. And before we moved, they couldn't get access to the building. So we've moved and that's now a lot better. So that's good. But yeah, we have to think about um, people like that and the, the disabled yeah. people. We need to make sure that they can attend these events as well. Because it's not fair if they don't. So hybrid is definitely the way forward. Not only disabled people, uh, not everybody has the, the money to spend on, on travel as well. Exactly. Or the, the family situation that allows that. Now, I don't have any kids, so I'm, I'm very well off in that regard. But I, I know I've seen Simon go through so much to just find how to get away to, to a conference. And you've had to, to uh, pay through the nose from a social standpoint, Simon. And I'm, I'm pretty impressed with, with everything you've done. I, I had a, a few comments in regards to my, my wife and daughter and how they think about it. But yeah, they, they've been super understanding. Uh, and I think that's the only way I, I could have done this. Um, and it's like my daughter in the beginning of the pandemic, she was, I think that the, I got that question every week. Daddy, do you miss going to the USA? Uh, because she, of course, realized that something big has different was different even though she was only two and a half, three at that point. And Daddy so, definitely did miss going to the US. Daddy <laughs> still does. Yeah. I, I have a, a, a community friend that tweeted me Friday and said, how are you? I'm going to make you jealous. I'm sorry for it, but I'm so happy. I'm going to Redmond on Monday. Oh, well. Nice. But, well, speaking about other things that... Technology, uh, as a wrap-up... What are you excited about in, in the in the nearest future of Azure? What technologies are you looking into learning more about and what upcoming technologies are you eager to, to try out? There's a couple of things that have come out that I haven't had a chance to look at. Azure Load Testing and Chaos Studio. Yeah. So I really want to... Now, the guys who do AKS at Intercept are very keen to look at this, but I'm quite keen to look at it just for... I'll give you an example. A customer today had some problems with... 
um, CPU, high CPU, and I showed him how to drill into it and stuff like that. But he wants to try and replicate that in his test environment so that he can look at the indexes that are potentially missing and do all that. And I'm like, well, have a look at uh, the load testing studio and you can do that sort of thing. So that's kind of quite good. Technology-wise, nothing... I'm not a fan of AKS. I'll go on record as saying that. So everything's moving to AKS, and I'm like, yeah. The problem I have with AKS is it's very complicated from the development team's point of view. They have to learn all of this, and microservices is really hard. Don't care what anyone says, it's really hard. Um, and AKS is probably amazing, and that's fine, but getting your app ready for AKS is the hard part. And I don't think a lot of people are at that point yet. I also see a lot of people trying to do it in production straight away and haven't actually done a proof of concept in AKS and I'm thinking is this is this the right thing to do? Um, I don't think a lot of apps need microservices to be honest with you and we're not building global scale Amazon type Amazon.com type things nothing needs to be like unlimited scale and things like that so I don't know I'm not a fan of that so that's one technology I'm trying to steer clear of but everything's going that way so it's going to be really difficult so <laughs> Other technologies, um, I'm starting to look at Synapse now. So Azure Synapse is, is becoming more and more prevalent at work, so I need to look at that a bit more. Um, other than that, nothing really jumped out at me at the moment. Just keeping an eye on everything, really. Um, the AI stuff's quite interesting. I do like that stuff, though. Um, I need to kind of get my hands on that a little bit more, but that's about it, really. I try to look at machine learning, but quickly find that you need to know maths quite a lot so you need to be quite smart at maths i mean i'm not daft but the, the level of maths you need for a, uh, machine learning is quite staggering so i was like yeah i'll give that a miss <laughs> well, the thing and, and is I, you, you don't necessarily need to know a lot about math but your results will be accordingly mm. <laughs> what about you let me ask you guys because i know this is your podcast but what what technology stands out for you for you or what's keeping you interested you're allowed to say nothing yeah. at the moment because yeah, you're, yeah. you're busy <laughs> doing lots of stuff, obviously. But yeah, I think the 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 main the the upside and the challenge in my area, at least, is that I don't get too many new things. It's how things are slowly progressing towards something new. I had a fantastic product group call just before this one, which I'm not allowed to talk about. Uh, but um, I would quite like. I, to work on something that's slowly evolving i think that's yeah a good especially yeah. on the cloud <laughs> you're more than welcome to either study microsoft endpoint manager or humanity because it's slowly evolving one is going in the right direction and the other one is going definitely the going in the wrong direction uh, but yeah I, I would say that the all the the cross platform technologies that i'm getting now in terms of managing linux managing mac os managing mobile devices managing Chromebooks and and everything, that is what I'm really interested in. And before Alexander gets to answer, because he have a lot more new things than I have, I again want to quote Ben Armstrong from Altaro Software's latest episode, the Sysadmin Dojo, where Ben Armstrong said, Kubernetes is mind-blowingly complicated. So he agrees with you, at least. Now, Alex. And, and so do I. So I... I, I smile when i when you, when you said you want to work with something that doesn't evolve as quickly i remember vividly starting out with oracle back in the late 90s we got a new version every four or five years that was a reasonable tempo i think but having said that i i'm a, a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to data stuff because i i kind of do the same thing you do you i, I run around 
put my, my ears on the, the tracks to figure out what's happening. And mm-hmm. I do uh, a fair amount of Synapse stuff. And it is so clear that Synapse is the coolest thing ever, according to Microsoft. And it, it can do everything, and it can do everything fantastically well. Reality is not quite that simple. And I've seen a lot of examples where you're essentially just making things more expensive and more complex without very much gain. Um, with Power BI, things are moving ever faster. It, it does not suffer from the same complexity, if you will. Um, but it's it's um, it, it, it's kind of put into a more of a steady state. But the 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 new stuff that comes out is just so cool. Uh, both on on the front end and the back end. So I find myself kind of regressing back to the mean. I was standing in in the shower this morning and going, I really would like to work with old school SQL Server again. (laughs) So that might actually be what I'll be doing for for a bit. (laughs) Just just quickly while you mentioned Synapse, it feels like to me looking from the outside in that they're trying to put all their eggs in one basket, which is an expensive basket. That's kind of how it feels. Is that fair to say? Or... Well, yes and no. I mean, everything is about Synapse. They want to put everything, as you said, in the same basket. The The bad thing is that the basket is severely limited at, as it stands. Uh, it's kind of a one-trick pony. And I'm, I'm sorry for the, the Synapse people, but that's kind of what I see it as. It's, it's definitely designed for the larger customer as it stands. It has all the hallmarks of a fantastic product as they mature. But the real kicker is also the, the thing that makes most people frustrated, the integrated security. When it works, it is just fantastic. I, I, I challenge anyone to try to do with Databricks what you can do just integrated with Synapse Studio. For the most part, it just works. When it breaks, run, because it is nigh on impossible to figure out what broke in the security stuff. So it's a lot of duct tape, but when it works, it is just fantastic, I think. My biggest thing about the cloud is I always want to know how something works under the covers. I don't like this magic box that does stuff. That's that's not how I've been brought up. So that's probably why I don't really like AKS, because I don't think anyone really knows too well what's going on behind the scenes. It's kind of like magic. <laughs> And I don't like that. I always like to be able to debug something and figure out what's what's happening. That's just the dev in me. But yeah, I need to look at Synapse a bit more going forward. But yeah, it's an interesting product. And as as you always say, Alexander, we uh, we are over time again. At least we are consistent. Uh, but it's been a joy speaking to you, Gregor, again. Um, and thank you for being here. And thank you for everything you've done for the community. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And I hope to see you soon at events and user groups. With that, it's time to end. Thank you for listening. And uh, bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Need Even Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at